This is HSBC Global Viewpoint, your window into the thinking, trends and issues shaping global banking and markets. Join us as we hear from industry leaders and HSBC experts on the latest insights and opportunities for your business. Thank you for listening. For joining us today on this panel, The Green Evolution. My name is Sabrina. I'm part of the market sales team based in Dubai, covering the region. Joining us today, we have Zoe Knight. Zoe is our group head of Center of Sustainable Finance. We have Daniel Clear. Daniel Clear is the president of Arabesque Holding. Arabesque is an ESG data leading platform and technology company. We have Frank Novak. Frank joins us from Franklin Templeton where he leads the efforts on the uh, mandates on global sukuk and minat fixed income. And Philip Richard joining us from the Abu Dhabi Global Markets. Thanks all of you for joining us today. And we'll be discussing with our experts how regulators and governments need to set the trajectory from the experts' point of view. So let's start with Philip. Philip, please, we'll all agree that a regulation strategy is required. Government and regulators need to set the trajectory. So can you please, for us, uh, describe the landscape? And since you're the expert in the UAE, please, can you start with the UAE? Thank you, Sabrina. Well, thank you for inviting me. We worked two years ago on uh, high-level green principles, uh, and we worked with the uh, other UAE regulators, quite high-level, and then then we made a survey to see to what degree uh, they were implemented. But Coming today, it's not enough. We have to go much further because today the context is different. We had the COP26 uh, last year. We have the, now the 2050 uh, net target for the UAE. Uh, we have the uh, upcoming uh, COP28 next year uh, to be hosted by uh, the UAE. So we have to do much more. And I think that... Uh, um, what we have done um, at the end of last year, ahead of COP26, was a major step forward because we uh, issued all regulators in the UAE, I mean, the uh, Central Bank, ESCA, the DFSA, and, and, and the others, we issued a high-level statement designing a, a kind of a roadmap uh, ahead of COP26 in order to try to uh, prepare for the uh, net net zero uh, by 2050. It's a major challenge, and uh, I think we've, we've done quite a lot. Just to finish on, on, on the context, uh, disclosure is the first step. And disclosure, you know, you, you have two, uh, two angles. Obviously, one is uh, the firm's angle, uh, the firm's level, and the other one is the uh, product level. On the firm's level, you have different categories. Uh, one category is well, listed entities, and ESCA has done quite a lot last year. You have the uh, what we call the regulated entities within uh, ADGM, for instance, which are not always listed, obviously. Most are, are not listed. And you have the unregulated commercial entities. So there are different angles to, to, to keep in mind. Uh, what we want to do is, uh, and we are working on that, it's working in progress, we want to uh, have a disclosure requirements, but there are different ways of doing that. It could be a recommendation, comply or explain, or fully obligatory, mandatory to be enforced. We are more on the uh, 
comply or explain uh, with a gradual approach uh, that, that we, we would support hopefully at the end of this year. And I'm going to turn to Daniel. Daniel, uh, Philippe was talking about disclosures. Now, we are trying to understand which ESG information is material when we think about regulators considering disclosure requirements. Do you think regulators should rely on a third-party standard setter to identify what information is material? And the second part, investors rely a lot on rating agencies. So what recommendation do you think would be key to high quality ratings and reduce the risk of greenwashing? So that's two parts for you, please. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having me. It really depends what you're trying to achieve. I think one of the mistakes that we collectively make at the moment is that we talk about sustainability in a very broad term, or we talk about ESG in a very broad term. The information that you need to, for instance, assess a trajectory to net zero is a very different set of data points that you need to assess human rights risk in your portfolio, biodiversity considerations, or more more day-to-day discussions about diversity and inclusion. And so my big point and what I would advocate is what we need to achieve in the first instance is a very large set of fairly harmonized information that you can then use to derive different conclusions. And so I don't think there's a big benefit in developing the perfect ESG rating and having that sort of third-party assured because an ESG rating tells you very, very little. If you think about credit ratings as a parallel, credit ratings have a very simple purpose. The purpose of a credit rating is to tell you how likely it is that you get your money back. ESG ratings are completely different. We try to put so many things into an ESG rating. So so long-winded answer to your point, um, I agree with Philippe. We need to have much better disclosure, much more information, and then build the type of applications on that data that help you address net zero, that help you address human rights, that help you address diversity and inclusion considerations. And last, I think the role of the regulator here is really important because unless we come to a point where we have good quality data to work with, financial markets will struggle to allocate capital efficiently because information for capital markets is just a signal. And the signal allows you to allocate capital in the best way. Thank you, Daniel. That's very uh, helpful. You said not enough information is available. And you also talked about inconsistency in terms of information. So on that point, I'm just going to turn to Frank and Zoe, maybe, because that's key. Frank being on the investor side, I want to say. We have a very good mix today because we have the investor side, we have the regulator, we have the data, and we have Zoe here who represents the bank side. Frank, please, just on the information Daniel was talking about. So I'm interested from your point of view, how have you gauged what investors are looking for when it comes to ESG products? Do you think their objectives fall outside risk-return objectives? And that's the question that I'm asking because it's going to take me to the next one. So please, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Well, thank you. I think we've covered a lot of ground. And uh, you saw, you heard uh, the information gaps. But that's something, you know, we as, as money manager um, have to deal with uh, very proactively in the sense that, you know, I think the, the stage is set. Policy agendas have moved. Sustainability, decarbonization, uh, all of these teams have, um, you know, targets now and they have long-lasting agenda. 
Um, so as Daniel mentioned, um, probably different strategies will have different data requirements. Um, and, you know, for example, for us, we can manage, you know, label ESG, thematics, you know, value-driven, run the corner of the region, which would be one example of those products uh, for, for which we have demand. Um, but broadly speaking, I think, to come back to your risk-adjusted return question, we think very much the model is going to be widely adopted by asset manager when it comes to ESG and data and integration. Uh, it's going to be a risk-based integration uh, that, you know, key ESG um, topics, dynamics, challenges needs to be integrated into an investment process uh, at all steps, uh, you know, portfolio allocation, look back, uh, and, and attribution. Now, ratings are... Um, Yes, not, not the end game. I would agree with that. Um, and the data is definitely incomplete, uh, when it comes to the region. Uh, what we use them within this investment process is it has a benchmarking tool. That's all, that's always very useful for us, uh, when we want to integrate and, and improve, uh, investment processes to have a, a second pair of eyes, uh, even though it might be imperfect. Uh, but the reality is I feel, um, a lot of asset managers had to do the way we went, uh, which is to develop internal tools and, you know, proprietary tools um, to have a view and a practical view uh, that will impact portfolio and on which we can, uh, we can demonstrate. Uh, and in that, you have two worlds. Um, you, have, you have a sovereign element. Um, so, you know, state level, ESG uh, data is probably where... where and I'm specifically about the MENA region where, where the gaps are, are, are the largest. Um, uh, and I think initiatives such as the one Philip describes are, are really useful um, uh, to plug these, these gaps. Um, and then on the corporate front, um, you know, just to give you an idea of, of, of what we do, um, we have an internal model, but that, that's around 50 templates. So it's hard to give you like a unified answer because they are very different industries which will have their different standards, different dynamics, uh, which we, we, we all need to capture. And uh, maybe before I pass the ball to Zoe, I'll end with, um, on those issues, what we have been trying to do, and, and, and I mentioned to you, we, we try to adopt like a proactive stance. All we have, having been proactive, as, as really trying to be um, engaged uh, with different partners. So the DCM communities, the issuers themselves, uh, the government, um, not in a consultative way, I mean, we can express our preference when it comes to data and the release we expect. Um, but just to trigger and, and, and kind of like snowball that, that mentality out of every actors of the ecosystem in the region, uh, which we think is the most efficient way to, uh, to progress. Thank you, Frank. We've heard different standards, different dynamics, lack of, uh, of data, and, and that's from your perspective. Zoe, from your perspective, uh, can you please share your views? Banks and lenders have an important role to play in this wave of sustainable finance. Can, can you please share your thoughts? Sure, and thank you, Sabrina, for the, the invitation to talk today. We've certainly covered so much ground between us already in this in this session, and there are a couple of points that I want to build from. So firstly, the disclosure issue, it is so critical, but it is only a starting point in the sense that we really needed to get more information about ESG approaches by corporates and investors and how they're thinking about the ESG topic, and clearly 
being able to uh, set out a narrative around that was in, important for many reasons. But now the, the need is to increasingly look at the credibility of the climate plan that is being disclosed. So we're increasingly seeing asks, whether it's from regulators or shareholders or broader society, to really understand whether the, the disclosure that is coming from corporates and others is scientifically aligned with net zero outcomes. And this builds on Daniel's point, right, of what do you want to use the, the information for? What are you trying to solve with the, with the information that you're trying to get a hold of? And this credibility point is a really crucial one, and it's where the taxonomy sort of helps and hinders in a way. So credibility in one sector and one country may have a very different scientifically aligned emissions pathway than in another country. So whilst we've got very good guidance today on what a net zero emissions outcome looks like at the global level, right? We know what to do to finance the solutions. We know what we need to move away from. What we haven't got is the nuanced information that means that a credible transition plan for Egypt versus a credible transition plan for the UAE might look slightly different in terms of what you want to put your capital towards and how you want to understand the speed at which that plan can be delivered. And this is another important aspect for the disclosure and transparency debate. It's the actual feasibility of being able to deliver the emissions reductions outcomes within the time frame that investors and other stakeholders are expecting. So there's a lot of work to do in terms of the data information set that we need, the use cases for how we put it to work to get to those outcomes that we want, which are emissions related. So previously disclosure was enough. Looking forward, now this credibility piece is going to be critical. And then if we take a, a step back in terms of thinking about financial flows, the end game here is to provide capital, much more capital to the solutions. But as I mentioned, the, the, the pure play solutions are very well known and, and solvable in terms of, of removing barriers. The less uh, clear-cut pathway is in, in the likes of oil and gas sectors, steel, cement, shipping, aviation, those areas where we need to think a bit harder about what aligning capital to a net zero outcome looks like. So there's a lot of work to do on that front, and that's where taxonomy does help with providing some signposting to, to what makes sense. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you. Uh, I think each one of you has used the word taxonomy, um, mm -hmm. and, and that's a very interesting point. So I, I'm, I'm going to throw at each one of you that question, and please, it is really high level. We're not going into details, but because so far, we all agree a regulation strategy is required. Now, what do you think an ESG taxonomy should look like in the region? Do you think we should replicate what is happening in Europe? I'm going to start with you, Philip. Thank you for the question. It's uh, quite difficult, I must say, <laughs> but very, uh, very interesting. It is. I mean, uh, <laughs> we, 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 we talk about disclosure, and um, Zoe alluded to, uh, to taxonomy and the transition, so uh, I'm happy to, to step in because uh, clearly uh, uh, there is a link between both disclosure and taxonomy. And, and uh, you know, it's a kind of taxonomy to make it simple it's a kind of dictionary or, or classification of activity based on scientific analysis very complex and uh, 
if I'm right, I think that around the world there are almost 200 taxonomies. So we saw that in UAE, we're not going to come with one more on top, which would be just limited to, to the UAE. Uh, uh, having said that, we, are, we have to look around. The EU is doing uh, what's going on in Asia. We are particularly interested by uh, the Southeast uh, taxonomy, which was developed. I think the taxonomy has to reflect local conditions while being aligned with best practice. So that's not easy. So we're not going to replicate. Uh, I think that one of the key questions is really to make sure that uh, um, how the transition is reflected in the taxonomy. The taxonomy cannot be just a snapshot, you know, a, a photo. It has to show a kind of transition, a movie, a dynamic. So uh, I'm... Uh, I'm happy to uh, to say that uh, if an activity within tax, the taxonomy can uh, facilitate, accelerate, accelerate decarbonization, it should be uh, recognized uh, as as such. So we are we are quite supportive of, of this approach, and uh, we we are not very much supportive of the uh, black and white or uh, green and brown. And uh, so it's a, a dynamic. And and as as Zoe mentioned, uh, uh, how can we uh, assess the speed of the transition in an emerging market, which is quite different from a, from a, from a very developed market like, like in the EU. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you, Philip. Frank, you are the MINAT expert, so I would be keen to hear your thoughts on the taxonomy and if we should replicate what's happening in Europe. You know, without being an expert, and I think what, uh, what, what Philip says is kind of music to my ears, if it happens, if the regulator and institutions can go after what they see as um, implementable and best practices that is relevant to the ecosystem. Because, you know, I, I don't have a very strong view on, you know, what's best or not. And I think some of those debates sometimes can be quite politically charged, depending on, you know, where you stand as a country within your own transition, within your own means, within, um, within your objectives, you know, within the way forward. What I would say is, um, you know, having faced here for, for quite some time, um, I, I think the region has, has quite a few advantages when it comes to implementation, because now the goals are, are broadly set. Now what you're facing, what we're all facing, and what I'm facing in terms of great investment is an implementation risk that, you know, it's not credible enough, it's not fast enough, um, and, you know, it's not, it's not well enough orchestrated. Um, Having seen how, you know, everything institutional has developed in the region, um, the goals that have been set and the track record of, of implementing policies when they've been decided and when they've set in stone, uh, give me, give me some hope. Um, I think the goals have been clearly set. Um, and I think very importantly, um, that there is, there is an ability to mobilize the funding and there are the resources, uh, that are here. To, to develop that. Um, and I think when you look at, you know, countries or region, and I don't know, let's take like renewable, for example, you know, you have, you have stories like, you know, Morocco as a country, right? Uh, and, and those are locations where, you know, policies, institution, funding, everything has been aligned to the same goal um, and, and you've delivered. So, yeah, I would say taxonomy is important. Um, if we can get the best practices, um, definitely helps. Um, but 
that needs to fit into a, a broader ecosystem uh, that, that needs to have some coherence, which is probably another layer of challenge, but, but probably one to my eyes that is uh, more important. Thank you, Frank. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, Daniel, you're sitting in Europe. Again, the question for you, do you think we should replicate what is happening in Europe? Let me build on those two contributions already um, with, with three very brief points. First of all, I think we need to be very clear when we talk about a taxonomy, it's at the moment far away from an ESG taxonomy. It is not even the E, it's the carbon emissions pathway within the E. So we're only talking about which activities contribute to a net zero transition and which are not. So it's a, it's a very different level. Of, I give you an example. We as a company, we collect 450 data points for each uh, company in the world, 450 ESG data points. Here we're talking about 30. Very small subset of a much bigger ESG debate. Second, I think a taxonomy is really important because we need to move beyond the green and brown debate. Um, my favorite statistic that I've quoted many times before is that the 100 largest companies in the world are responsible for 70% of global greenhouse gas emissions. None of these companies are brown or green. There's some shades of olive. And you need some form of a taxonomy to actually assess our companies moving along these different shades towards greenness. So I think, yes, the taxonomy is important because it helps you assess progress and therefore allocate capital. And point number three especially for the UAE, a taxonomy is crucial. The, the, the economy is so fossil fuel dependent. Unless you set out a credible pathway, there is a risk that one always debates it as a, as a black and white, brown or green debate, while in reality, it is that transition pathway. And so I think the region, more than any other region, should be proactive and set out that, that, that credible pathway. Just to jump on that, I 100% agree with Daniel. Equally, the point now is to make sure that new financial flows are being allocated in a way that gets us onto this end net zero outcome. And the vast majority of that financing need is going to come from existing corporates that are already in the high climate impact sectors, right? Because they're going to need to invest the transition or we are going to have to somehow create vehicles that provide the means to do an accelerated fossil exit, which will mean taking into account long-term power purchase agreements, long-term compensation for uh, individuals that may well be um, involved in those sectors to, to make sure that the transition that we deliver is a just one, an equal one, and be able, is able to bring everyone along on that, on that pathway. And so what the taxonomy helps with is that, as Daniel pointed out, is that the, the, the shades of... of of uh, the gradients of how we move will be determined by the different categorizations of each of those high climate impact activities as they move to low climate impact ones. And the other thing to point out is that, you know, years ago when we first started about, started talking about labeling the fixed income market into green bonds, and we all went away and gave, came up with the principles behind that. We didn't really realize just how successful that would be at bringing in a wider audience and wider engagement to get to solutions faster on, on unblocking the finance for green solutions that were, that were critical for, 
um, sustainability. So I think that the, the taxonomy piece very much plays into that. It's this, this sustainability linked transition journey where we need to understand just exactly how every single sector, whether it's high climate impact today or low climate impact today, but especially the high climate impact ones are moving forward and the speed at which they'll be able to deliver that. Thank you, Zoe. I'm just going to move to Frank now because we talked a lot about data and disclosures. And I want to hear from Frank, and I'm trying to understand from an asset manager, um, when you look at company ESG scores, because now now they're kind of available, uh, not questioning if they are uh, for all of, of the corporates and institutional or not, but are you comfortable with the rating and disclosures that you see when you look at them? It's evolving. There are still definitely some you know, takeaways that we got from our engagement. So just to give you a very practical example, early 2020, and I was speaking specifically to a corporate world, right? Um, we have roughly 100 issuers. Uh, we reached out to all of them uh, asking about you know, strategy, best practices they wanted to adopt, uh, disclosures levels uh, they were happy with. Um, the response rate was not, 100% definitely, you know, more in the 70s, um, which means that, you know, the, the data and the information gap uh, is also prevalent, um, and, and that's especially true for the fixed income world. So it might, might be better on the equity side in the region. That I'm not too sure. I want to speak on it. Um, but, uh, and that's why it was so important for us uh, to, to, to have our, our internal models. Um, one reason also being that uh, they still remain up until today um, quite a gap in terms of rating. So, you know, you have a lot of companies that are unrated in the region, um, even by, you know, specialized agencies, so you take MSCI or Analytic, uh, you probably have like 25% uh, of the investable universe we look at that is not covered at all. Um, so you, you, need to, you need to plug this gap. Some management teams, perhaps including those in GCC and MENA, tend to be reluctant to early adopters in ESG. How might we collectively persuade them to alter this view? Well, it's, it's a very simple response, which is, this is the new normal. Integrating ESG thinking is the new normal, and there's no escaping it, because financial providers are all coming under this wave of uh, different catalysts to make them think about ESG, partly because there's commercial opportunity in it, as we see from the, uh, the asset management industry, where there's now, I think, 23 trillion of assets under management related to ESG strategies. But equally, from a bank's perspective, it's managing our capital and liquidity and central banks around the world are asking us to look at um, scenarios, climate scenarios, in terms of what that might mean for us and how disruptive that could be. And that's that's driving a, a, a thinking which is around risk management in particular in, in that context, but also in terms of how to generate and preserve and grow market share in revenues um, in relation to this topic. So it's it's no more the sense that this is a nice to be thinking of because it will generate a little bit of incremental value somewhere over there. It's front and central to the way that banks in particular, but the financial system more broadly, 
is is working to to run itself and is working to um to, to be fit for purpose going forward thank you zoe I'm just going to ask your forecast for 2022. Can you please share with us? I'm going to start with Zoe, please. Very quick recommendation from me. With COP27 and COP28, it's an opportunity for the region to show leadership on on transition and and really work on on building that profile of of what energy transition looks like. Thank you. Uh, Philip? Yes, same uh, objective. I mean, uh, 22 is preparing 23 and... uh, we are working hard on disclosure. Uh, be behind that, there is the, uh, the governance and taxonomy at the end. Uh, just to finish on taxonomy, I think we, we have to improve uh, comparability and interoperability uh, on taxonomy. Thank you, Philippe. Daniel? So over the last years, we've seen incredible progress and a lot of people making big promises. I think 2022 will be all about who is keeping promises. Frank? No, I think I, uh, I can only agree with everyone. Um, year of uh, implementation, uh, which I think the more developed market is going to be very interesting to, to witness, um, and, and year of acceleration uh, on the agenda uh, for regions like, like ours, um, with, uh, with, with great hopes for, 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 for very different progress. Thank you, Daniel, Philip, Zoe, Frank. I really enjoyed that. And there are so many more questions that I have, but unfortunately, we have to stop here. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening today. This has been HSBC Global Viewpoint, Banking and Markets. For more information about anything you heard in this podcast, or to learn about HSBC's global services and offerings, please visit gbm.hsbc.com.